Hi there, this is Susie Price, and you're listening to the Wake Up Eager Workforce podcast, where we cover everything related to helping you and the employees in your organizations build a high commitment, low drama, wake up, eager workforce. We are all about Wake Up Eager here at Priceless Professional Development. We are the sponsors of this podcast. And we focus on helping leaders in organizations make good decisions about their people by providing processes, tools, and resources. And the whole focus is to help you increase involvement and enthusiasm in the workplace. And I'm welcoming you to this episode. This is part two of Workplace Motivation, Drive Like a Ferrari with a Full Tank of Gas. So you don't want to miss part one because it gives you the whole buildup to what we're doing here today. This is a part of my keynote speech that I give related to this topic. And uh, so we're having fun sharing it with you. So go check out part one. This is part two. You can find uh, everything at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Ferrari. And um, we'll pick up where we left off from part one now. Welcome to the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast, a show designed for leaders, trainers, and consultants who are responsible for employee selection and professional development. Each episode is packed full with insider tips, best practices, expert interviews, and inspiration. Please welcome the host who is helping leaders, trainers, and consultants everywhere, Susie Price. Let's go to the next one, utilitarian. And that is a drive for return on investment. What they most want is to impact the business bottom line. They want results. They want an opportunity to optimize things and they want a return on investment. So what is going to be their dissatisfier or stressor? Investments with little return. Meetings that go on too long. Not getting to the point quick enough so that they know what the return is on them. Wasting their time, energy, resources. Not getting paid for the time that they put in and or not getting some kind of return for all of that. So salary matters to everybody, but it is a high dissatisfier, a stressor factor for the high utilitarian. What they may overdo is they because they like to work so much, they may become a workaholic. And so sometimes they will look like a workaholic to others. And it's just because they're they're happy. They're not stressed out. They're happy working. And then other times they will work too much and not be really aware that they're approaching burnout. So if you're high utilitarian, just be aware of that in regard to pressures from others. Or if you love a high utilitarian, that's something that can be overdone and, and needs to be understood. Some of the paid and volunteer work, economic sales, like I said earlier, sales, 82% of all top salespeople are utilitarian economic finance, supply chain, medicine, dentistry, consulting, accounting, engineering, real estate, construction, trade schools, business management, project coordination, investment banking. Some of famous people, Warren Buffett, Mary Barra, who's the CEO of GM, Jay-Z started all kinds of great businesses, Sheryl Sandberg, a Facebook executive, and if we have a race team and we're trying to fill a position that would be a high utilitarian, it'd be somebody that maybe sells uh, sponsorships, people in the business office, maybe people in the accounting, people managing the books. They're, you know, focusing on the, you know, return on investment for the organization. Okay. Does that get you excited and say, oh, yep, that's me. Or does that repel you? Let's go to the next one. That is aesthetic. Aesthetics is the drive for balance, harmony, and form. What they most want is to be creative, imaginative, innovative, 
Um, they want to create harmonious environments. They want an opportunity for self-actualization. They want to correct imbalances in systems. I was talking to somebody the other day and they are high aesthetic. It's their number one driver and they scored it passionate or I think it was, yeah, passionate. So it's so stronger than the rest of the population. It's that, oh yeah, I loved correcting balances in systems. She knew exactly what that was and how that played out for her in her current role. So that is the high aesthetic. A dissatisfier is um, when there's chaos, um, when there's a lack of balance. So if you're if you are somebody who has a high aesthetic, you must get outside, you must get rest, you must create everything you can in your personal and professional life for calm and lack of chaos, and then manage it. Uh, do everything you can to do that and you will feel better. People who are not high aesthetic will be like, okay, the chaos, I don't love it, but I'm okay with it. But it, it's a bigger impact because it's it's the thing that they like to create, you know, the lack of chaos. They want balance. What people might see because they are very highly, what I've seen over the years with many, many people have great intuition, great instincts. They see the whole picture. They don't compartmentalize. Like I tend to compartmentalize. And so what I, the benefit I always see is, oh my gosh, they saw something that I did not even see. And so because they're thinking more of expression and big picture, uh, sometimes people will interpret that as thinking outside of reality. They're not thinking of the practical side, but it's because they're looking at something differently. They're not thinking just utilitarian. What's the ROI? They're thinking of the ideal And then sometimes they may also, well, they might not be overdoing it. They're just doing something different. Sometimes their overdue can be, uh, they're not thinking of the realistic practical side of it. So that's where they can partner with somebody's utilitarian. If they understand each other, then, you know, for business results or whatever they need to get done, it will help uh, if they're not, you know, uh, angry at each other for wanting different things. So that's the whole point of all this, right? Some examples, and I see aesthetic in all kinds of roles, um, but some you might see that is, makes sense is graphic design, marketing and advertising, event planning, culinary arts, architecture, urban planning, environmental design, interior design, photographer, artist, horticulture, landscaping. And this is paid and volunteer work. What I often say to people is if they're not specifically able to do this all the time at work and they're feeling some stresses. Go do some of these things, these self-development, put gas in your tank things. Some famous people, Walt Disney, you know, he saw, he was the visionary. He saw Tyler Perry as a visionary. Vera Wang is a designer. Frank Lloyd Wright, a visionary, saw things differently. Steve Jobs, he, he gave the Apple the beauty and simplicity that it has. Jackie Onassis with her style. If you have a race team, some of the aesthetic, if they were going to hire somebody, you know, based on their aesthetic, they would get to spend time thinking about how's the car going to look? How's our marketing going to look? How's it all going to feel? What's our website done? How do we do our social media to get the right image across? So that is high aesthetic. Hopefully you have a better understanding of that now. Is that you? Does that uh, get you excited or does that say, oh yeah, not me. I don't want to do that five days a week. Okay. Next is social altruistic. That is a drive to help others uh, remove pain and suffering in the world. What they most want is an opportunity to serve and volunteer and contribute to the higher good of others. They put others before themselves. They champion social causes. And again, they like to remove pain and suffering in the world. So these are folks that within your organization, I've seen them at all levels. And so sometimes their job doesn't specifically require social altruistic, but they are the people in the organization that other people go to to talk to. Because people sense this person really wants to, is open and will listen and with a kind heart and 
you know, lack of judgment and they like to give. And so that's what I see uh, in all the years that I've done this and seen so many people and, and known about their life. And so they are a great bellwether to tell you when there are processes or procedures or uh, policies that are insensitive to people. Those are the things that are their greatest dissatisfier because they are paying attention to how do we help people. So listen and pay attention to them. And if you are high social altruistic, you know, you need to use that strength within your organization. One of the overdues is, and it's, it, again, it's like all of them, because they love to serve, they're going to serve a lot more than other people. And so sometimes people who aren't as high altruistic may say, well, gosh, they're, they're not doing enough for themselves. So that can be a perception. And then it also can be an overdue where they, because they love to give, they sometimes put themselves a little last or maybe create lose-win, you know, where all the benefits for the other person. So there's, you know, opportunity there. Some paid and volunteer work, nonprofit, education, healthcare, uh, social services, uh, medicine, social work, counseling, therapy, veterinarian, public policy, firemen, police officer, coaching, could be professors. I was on a call recently with someone who's a professor. And that person, as soon as we, she said, okay, I, I need to go. I only have a couple more minutes. She said, oh, there's people lined out my door to talk to me. <laughs> Very popular professor because she shows she cares and, and people are committed to her and the organization because of how she is a professor. So it shows up in all kinds of ways. Uh, the best example is Mother Teresa, you know, that she was an extreme example of social altruistic. Sigmund Freud, Ben Carson, Maya Angelou, Dalai Lama, Princess Diana, all people of service. On a race team, if you're hiring somebody or roles that require social altruistic, you'd see someone who is giving support to the driver, maybe coaching the driver. You might have your personal assistant for the driver be altruistic because you, as a personal assistant, you'd spend all the time trying to help them, you know, be comfortable. Maybe it's in on the race team, handle charity events that would get, you know, excitement around that. A sports psychologist, that's how that might show up on a race team. Okay, we got two more. Is that you, social altruistic, or is it the next one? Individualistic political. That's that drive to stand out independent and unique. What? Individualist and political people most want is to be the go-to person. Uh, they want to advance things. Uh, they want to build connections and a strong network. They're okay and comfortable with being visible and comfortable with figuring out how they can influence others. And they often think outside the box. So they're having new ideas. So because you know, being a high individualistic political means that you're willing to work long and hard to pull an organization forward and you're willing to be the face of that organization. They're often spokesperson in official or unofficial role. It might be the spokesperson just for the team and it might be the official spokesperson for the organization, but that's a lot of work that goes into that. It's not easy being a leader. So some of their stressors might be, okay, I'm doing all of this because one, I'm driven to it and they have a lot of charisma usually. And people, I found that people are willing to follow me, but when people don't have respect for the position or chain of command, they can be more bothered by that than other people who don't have high individualistic. And so if it's not your thing, you'll be like, well, what are you worried about? You know, it got done. Um, and, and so to understand the stressor is because of, you know, the driver. And so what they look like sometimes with high individualistic, like I mentioned, they are very charismatic or they usually have a lot of charisma. And so people are interested in them. And so people will make them the hero 
And so they have to be aware of that. And so it look, may look like they have a strong desire for power and to control everything and, and, you know, have, have be in charge of, you know, their own destiny and everybody else's destiny too. And some of that may be true. And it's a good thing because where would we be if we didn't have some of the famous people uh, like Sarah Blakely of Spanx? And we wouldn't have Spanx if she wasn't willing to blaze the trail. Henry Ford, Sheila Johnson, she's the co-founder of Black Entertainment Television, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods. You know, they're individualistic, political, they're out front. So they may overdo that because people look to them to heroes. So they've got to be aware of that that they don't let their charisma overshadow the other good work in the organization. And so sometimes it, you know, it's interpreted like, oh, they're power hungry. And we just need to make sure it doesn't come across that way. And we need to make sure we're not power hungry if we have a high individualistic political. So paid and volunteer work, what you often see with that motivator when it's a number one or number two is uh, entrepreneurs, could be political science, public speakers, lawyers that do litigation, you know, where they're visible, in business, just in general, you'll see it. I often see it if I'm talking to an executive team. A lot of people in that room are going to have individualistic politicals or top motivator broadcasting. So a lot of the people that are visible on the screen, consultants, venture capitalism, professional sports, leadership, sales, trade jobs, outdoor adventure jobs where you might be you know, leading teams outside. Um, and I already mentioned the famous people. On a race team, it's probably the driver. Uh, it might be the team owner. It might be the team spokesperson. So that's high individualistic political. And then lastly is traditional regulatory. This is a drive to establish order, routine, and structure. What the traditional regulatory most wants is the opportunity to follow and enforce rules and values. Uh, they want to work within a chain of command and they want to implement high standards. So the traditional regulatory is going to be your person that says, okay, let me check the process for that. This is the way we've done it. Why do you want to change it? So they're great at making sure processes and procedures happen. And so when there is a lack of direction or lack of order or structure, they're looking for where's the rule, where's the process, because that's what they value. I mean, it's a very important string. And so that can, it's a dissatisfier or a stressor when things are all wonky and there's no structure and people are just changing everything without really thinking through the, the history. And so they can look very rigid and judgmental because they're saying, you know, in closed minded because, you know, we should not change things. And sometimes they are being it. And sometimes they're just helping hold the line to, with somebody who isn't paying attention to this dimension of being, you know, the regulations and the traditions. So the overdue is that closed minded, judgmental towards others, viewpoints being too rigid. They're either doing it or maybe perceived that way because the other person doesn't value it. Paid and volunteer work for this. You people see people in government. You think about the traditions in government. They're very clear. Education, quality control. You know, you've got things you must, must do. Insurance, uh, religious roles, military, banking, finance, cultural studies, activism, law enforcement, industrial trade jobs, funeral services. All of those things have in common this idea of rules, processes, and procedures that are about doing it right. Uh, some of the famous people, Golda Meir, Mir, excuse me, G uh, General George S. Patton, Lieutenant Anita Van Buro, Buren on Law and Order. Couldn't get that out. If you watch Law and Order, and I know a lot of people do, so I thought it was a good example. She is the police chief or the head detective on Law and Order. So that she was always the one who was trying to get them to pay attention to the rules and such. Rosa Parks, you know, she stood up for 
uh, what she believed in. Billy Graham, he stand, stood up for, for what he believes in. On the race car team, if we were hiring somebody with traditional regulatory for the jobs that that would apply to, might be the chief financial officer, might be the person that's in charge of making sure the rules and regulations that they have to follow, which are numerous. There's probably a whole team of people who are doing that, you know, paying attention to the car rules, the race rules, you know, all of that detail for the team. So that is the six hidden. They're not hidden to you anymore. You know what they are. Six motivators. So I want you to think about which ones match your interests. I want you to consider taking the assessment. And we have 50 that are free as part of this podcast to the first 50 people by leaving us a review and let us know about it. But meanwhile, go look at motivatorsppd.com to learn more about each of those. I've given you a really, hopefully a very thorough overview on this. You know, words don't teach though. Life experience teaches. So whatever you resonated with, ponder it, pay attention to it, do more of it, see what happens. Do you start to feel a little revved up? Is your motivation, you know, accelerated? I'm using all those car words, right? Do you have more gas in your tank? You know, words don't teach, life experience teaches. So you have to kind of play around with this and see where it makes sense and see what, what your top interests are. Motivators in a practical way provide a common language for understanding and discussing differences. It is a game changer when you're thinking about valuing people and understanding, helping people get what they need on the job to be successful. And so it goes back to connecting with people. It goes back to seeing people for who they are. And on a team and in an organization and as a leader, it's imperative for you to understand that people have different opinions and they have different ways of seeing the world. They have different filters. So it's another kind of diversity. And this tool and this information can help you understand the value of every relationship, every relationship. People that you thought you didn't like, you might start to enjoy them a little bit more when you see them through the lens of them using their strengths. And that's definitely a journey. We don't go from, I'm totally irritated with somebody to, okay, I think this is fantastic. (laughs) It's a journey, but you can move out of judgment to understanding and from understanding to some uh, valuing and appreciating. It's, It's a journey, but this language can help. I want to tell you an example of a team team leader who learned about these. His name is Nathan, and his top motivators were the return on investment and the uh, which is utilitarian economic person and the political leader, which is the guy with the team leader with a lot of charisma. And he, you know, a lot of times we see that combination. It's a hero or a tyrant. So he was definitely a hero. His team adored him. They had a very effective team. And so he took the assessment and he was really enjoyed understanding how it could, how sometimes it could look like it's all about him and made some adjustments there to understand that. And that was happening a little bit, not not necessarily his fault, but now that he's aware of it, he can manage that. So the whole team is getting, you know, getting visibility and not just him all the time. And, you know, just really aware of how how hard he pushes people because he was so high utilitarian. And so that was very, very helpful. And then he said, let's, let's, ha- let's have my team take it. And so on the screen here, you'll see a workplace motivators wheel on the right that lists the six motivators that we just went through. And it, it shows the top motivators, the top two and the number six. And then we have a little talent tracker that we've created for Nathan that was a summary of his team. And so he started applying it. And what he realized is that a couple of the people had their top motivators, what he was, were what he is least interested in. 
And so the regulatory and the knowledge leaders, so the theoretical and traditional leaders that were working, this was an executive team that were working with him, were kind of, you know, he cared about them, but he found their approach annoying at times because they weren't the things that he was most interested in. So the beauty of the tool is that he was able to help, you know, to bring them in more, ask them, have assigned things to them that were better fit uh, for what their strengths were. He began to appreciate the differences as opposed to being a little bit frustrated with them, gave them more opportunities to use their strength. And, and he, he created even more trust on the team, a stronger team, more involvement, more enthusiasm. So it's a great way to use the tool. There's some exercises for teams. And um, uh, one of them is employees discussing what their energizers are and what their stressors are. And that can really help a team understand each other. What he did was the delegation proclamation is what we call it, leaders delegation proclamation. He reviewed everybody's motivators and just started to adjust tasks and projects. They still had the same roles that they were responsible for, but started to adjust or adapt to how he managed them, different projects and opportunities that he gave them based on their top motivators. And so that's how that started to change. And then you can really use it for resolving conflict. We have a whole process around that. And you have people share their viewpoint and then you begin to understand, you know, what each person wants from the other and discuss potential fixes of how you'll work together. It's, it's very powerful. So a lot of great value for this on a team. And then the report has some pages in it that allow you to do your own reflection. We have some the debrief video at motivatorsppd.com to look at. And then we've got a memory jogger card, but also the actual assessment has some places where you can create an action plan and you can think through your report and digest it by going through each of the pages and it guides you through that. So a lot of good information there that doesn't require outside facilitation. Now, I promised I'd show you how to use this for a lot of things. And we've hit a lot of the areas that I mentioned, higher uh, team building, conflict resolution, engagement. Uh, but now I want to talk about it for hiring. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that organizations and individuals make about hiring is they think, well, you know, I'll just find a person with a good attitude and I'll train them because you can train anybody to do any job. And so the funny picture, if you can see it right now, is a puppy big puppy sitting at the driving seat in the driver's seat, you know, with his hand on the steering wheel, you know, you can't train him. He's a great guy, a uh, great puppy, but you can't train him to do that job. And it's the same thing. And the more I'm in this work and the more I understand the dynamics of people and what it takes to have engagement and that you can measure job fit, you've got to find people who are a fit and, and they match it. And so, you know, we need to, to make sure that the gas in tank that the, what the job is going to reward matches what the candidate is most motivated by. And so there's processes that we do to help people figure out what the job rewards. Just knowing the six motivators, you'll start to understand, you know, okay, yeah, this one's a high theoretical and high individualistic because they got to become an expert and they got to stand in front of the group and present, you know, so you'll start to understand it just organically by just knowing the six motivators are no longer hidden from you. But you need to make sure if you want the champion that you hire to stay a champion, that their motivators match what the job rewards. And so uh, I want to tell you about one champion that we got to know about. Uh, her name was Chris. She was the director of finance and she was in a big organization, is in a big organization, and she was thriving and doing a great, great job. And so she had an opportunity to go to the nonprofit arm of the business. They started a foundation of this big company and they needed somebody to do some of the finance in the big, in the 
foundation to get it started. And so she's doing the role now and she's really, her, her drivers are theoretical. So she likes to learn and come up with new ideas. And in the fast growing organization, she was really using that in her director of finance position because she was looking for new tools and, and she's very, very practical. So return on investment type tools that would help the finance department because they were growing and adding new people. And so the foundation was brand new. And so she was thinking, I don't know why I'm not enjoying this. I'm still a champion, but I'm feeling like I'm in a strong race car with no gas. So she's feeling like she was just like, okay, I I don't think I can last here. I don't want to stay here. I'm not enjoying this. It's the same company. I don't understand why it's different. So we went through the five areas of fit and there, we cover this more in other episodes, but the, you know, we talked about how she drives, so her personality style and the and the behaviors that were needed on the job. Well, they matched what the job needed, so that was similar. We're trying to pinpoint, you know, where is it? Where is the mismatch? Because she couldn't define it; she just knew that she did not like this role as much as she liked it when she was in corporate. So. We looked at roads traveled and future plans. We use, of course, a car analogy to talk about these. This is, you know, your background and experience and where you want to go. She still wants to be with that company. Her background and experience, she knows she knows her her stuff with the being the director of finance and everything financial that she needed to know. So that was not an area where the uncomfortable level was. We looked at her personal skills. We had a trimetrics assessment for her and we were able to figure out, you know, the things that she needed. She had strength in and in her manager had given her feedback that those things were strong leadership, interpersonal skills, you know, being able to manage the team, you know, all of that was a fit. And then we talked about where she's parked and that's, that is culture and team. So what's the organization like, you know, what's the culture? How would you describe it? Is that where the rub is? And then what is the team, you know, who manages you, who you're managing? And she says, started to say, well, you know, that's where I feel funny. I don't feel like a duck in a pond anymore. When I was at corporate, I felt like I belonged there. And here I feel kind of like out of the loop. I've had some tension in some of the executive team meetings, you know, where I'm thinking we ought to come up with this new idea. And they're saying, no, this is the way we need to do it. We, you know, and then we we talked about gas and tank. So what does the job reward? And and what in the conversation didn't take very long. The conversation was probably less than 30 minutes and we got to it and she was not clear before then. It's like, okay, it's gas and tank. It's that the job needs somebody who's going to do all these regulations and set them up and, and make sure everybody follows them. They need kind of the policeman, you know, for the foundation because it's brand new and they're not doing anything new. And it just didn't match where her greatest interests were, what what her filter is, which is come up with new ideas. It was, you know, we got to do things, the basics. And so the good news is we were able to help Chris make a change and get back over to corporate. They did not lose an employee. It helped the foundation figure out, okay, their profile for hiring needed to be different. And Chris is a champion in a strong race car with a full tank of gas now. And she's continuing to grow within the organization and it all worked out. But it's a great example of the five areas of fit when you don't have this piece that we're talking about today be a match. Um, and and then that in that case, it was very powerful. So I have some interview questions that I want you to use. They're on the screen here. If you go to motivatorsppd.com and you scroll down to the middle, you'll see a list of the motivation interview questions. And there's, I think, about 100 of those. But the five that I wanted you to use are, and I want you to use them on every candidate, whether you ever use an assessment or not, but you're going to ask them what jobs do they like the most? Please share specific examples of what you enjoyed, what jobs did you enjoy the least, 
Please share specific examples of what you disliked. Give specific examples of past environments you work best in. Give specific examples of past environments that did not work well for you. What responsibilities would you like to avoid in your next job and why? So what do you think about those questions? Uh, They're all the same question asked five times, right? And so what it does is it gets them talking, gets them telling you, you can get a lot of information from that. And if you're listening through the lens of, okay, what does this person want to do? It's going to reveal their top motivators. You'll get an idea. And you're also listening through the lens of, what does the job need in order to be successful? They need, so if they need, for example, with Chris's, they need a traditional regulatory and everything she talks about is, yeah, I don't want to be the policeman about the processes. Then you're going to know, you know, and I really want to cry. Oh, I loved, you know, I love coming up with new ideas and new processes or new ways. You can listen to all of that and figure out whether they're a match, but go look at the motivators related interview questions. And they're really only 30 plus motivator related interview questions. I said a hundred but there's about 30 of those at motivatorsppd.com. Make sure you use those five that I just described. So I've talked a lot about what the benefits are to build understanding workplace motivators, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it helps you include the viewpoint of others, helps you understand what other people care about. It helps you communicate better. It helps you in hiring, it helps you in team building. It helps people become more engaged because you're, you're helping people do what they're naturally interested in. You're working with them to use their strengths. So powerful, powerful, powerful. So I want to share a quote with you. Uh, it's one of my favorites. We're about to come to a close here, but it's from Dr. Hartman. And I've done many episodes around his work. He's the founder of the science of axiology. And he said this this statement in the 1960s. He shared it with Nationwide, Siemens, Alcoa, Volkswagen. Um, and he was talking about what I'm talking about today and what Gallup's been talking about forever. And here's the quote. And I want to see if it touches you the way it does me, That especially the first time I heard it. He says, at a base level, we wonder, what am I here for in this world? Why do I work for this organization? How can this organization help me fulfill my meaning in the world? How can I help this organization help me fulfill my meaning in the world? We are all walking around with this. It is who we are. We came here to do our work. What am I here for in this world? If you think of, if you can think of your interactions with people and think about everybody, look around right now, everybody you're seeing, we're all wondering this. What am I here for? Why am I here? And how do I get what I want and what I need to fulfill my meaning? So, the motivators is just a one great way to put yourself in other people's shoes. Oftentimes we operate, we don't mean to do this. It takes some awareness to not do this is we operate. Well, I love this. So you should too. But the next level of that is it's the platinum rule, which is let me put myself in their shoes and help them get what they want. Let me understand their race car. Let me understand what puts gas in their tank and then see it appreciate it, even if it is the exact opposite of what you would do, see what they care about and help them do more of it with no judgment and with an open heart. And that, oh, I'm getting a little emotional. That's what this is about. This is not judging people for wanting something different, understanding what they want and helping them get it. And sometimes they can do it in your organization. Sometimes they can't. 
But at the end of the day, you're tuning into who they are as a human. And there's something really beautiful about that. That's why Spranger years ago in the 1928, when he figured this, it's the you know complex expression of the human soul. And so this is a big piece of that. And I want you to be able to find that and understand that and use it. We can use motivators throughout the entire employee life cycle, hiring, onboarding. You know, think about you know, new hires are deciding whether they're going to stay or go in the first 90 days. So what what would it be like if in the first 90 days their manager who's super busy and usually shows up the first day, but maybe they maybe they don't see for weeks, you know, or oh, maybe very little every week after that is, you know, met with them three times or so and, and talked to them about who they are and what they're interested in and how's it going. You know, we have a little agenda for that to help people use these kind of tools in onboarding. How about on the team? You think about Nathan's team and how much better that got. Leadership development, succession planning, conflict resolution. You can use it throughout the employee life cycle. So there are six motivators. They are the key to the Ferrari with a full tank of gas. I hope I've, I've done a bit of a sales job on this for you today and that you understand and appreciate it and can get some use out of it. There are six motivators, theoretical, utilitarian, aesthetic, altruistic, social, individualistic, and traditional. And, you know, life is just better when we're aligned with what we're most interested in. And then we get to do those every day. And so we want the involvement and enthusiasm and engagement in an organization. And so you think about those numbers that we started out with, that is abnormal. It's high numbers right now, and it seems normal that we have so many people that are actively disengaged and just disengaged, and you know, only 30% are engaged, 31%. And we got so many people that are quitting or actively quietly quitting or actively looking for another job. So we want to say that involvement, enthusiasm in the workplace could be normal, should be normal. And so, you know, what can be normal for your team is to have enthusiasm. What can be normal is the team is enthused. They have a full tank of gas. And so they're laughing a lot. They're happy. They're working together, even though they're different. Uh, what can be normal is to feel strong, sure, confident, and secure in who you are because you know what you care about and you wrap your life around that and you understand where you're coming from and you understand where other people are coming from. And when they're wanting something different from what you want, it doesn't make you feel insecure. It makes you understand just who they are and it helps you feel confident in what you're focused on. It helps you have energy at the end of the day. That's what we want is for you to have that and say, oh my gosh, I had a good day. I'm looking for more good things to do. And because you're feeling your gas tank is so full, uh, when you're in other people with other people, you have the patience and the interest to hear about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so it just makes you uh, just a more receptive and more, more engaged with other people, not, not even in including how engaged it makes you at work. It's more normal. It can be normal to have so much energy at the end of the day. We're eagerly planning the next day. So waking up eager, we're, we're excited. Today was good and I can't wait for tomorrow. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if it's normal that we're disappointed that the sun went down because it was having such a good day, but then excited when the sun comes up. That is wake up eager. That's a wake up eager workforce. That's a wake up eager life. Life is better when we have connection, when we have this enthusiasm, when we have this engagement, it is possible. It is a journey. It doesn't happen just with one time, but these tools and resources can help you do that. You know, drive, help your employees drive like a Ferrari with a full tank of gas. 
Go check out motivatorsppd.com. That's where all the resources are. And then if you leave a review, I'll send you a complimentary link to the Workplace Motivators Assessment. We'll do that for 50 people. And then just a reminder for the show notes for today, it is at uh, wakeupeagerworkforce.com is where the directory is. Excuse me. The show notes are at pricelessprofessional.com forward slash Ferrari. And then if you would like to uh, leave us a review and you're unsure how to do it, go to pricelessprofessional.com forward slash review. And I explain in a little two minute video on how to do that. It's very quick to find the link. And then you send me a quick note and uh, you can go to Susie at pricelessprofessional.com. Send me a text 770-842-2669 or just reach out to me any way you want. Give me a call and we'll get that complimentary assessment to you. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, it's fun to talk to you about this beautiful topic. I have had the opportunity to use this assessment so much uh, in people's lives that it, it is meaningful to me to be able to put it out there to the world um, so that other people can benefit. Um, it's changed my life. I'm having a wake up eager life and you know, it's not always been that way. I mean, it's not a static position, you know, it's something we work on, but it is so more prevalent than it had been before I knew all the things that I get to learn and share about here. And especially this workplace motivators and understanding where they are and how they work and uh, helping me help others be more engaged, helping myself be more engaged, having more patience and appreciation for others and just valuing everybody. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Look forward to hearing from you. If we can help you in any way, uh, reach out. Take care. This episode of the Wake Up Eager Workforce Podcast was brought to you by Priceless Professional Development. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to pricelessprofessional.com to gain access to more professional development resources. 